In his new book, Human Work in the Age of Smart Machines, Jamie Marisotis shares his perspective on finding abundant and meaningful work in the 21st century as automation, artificial intelligence, and robots take over. Visit luminafoundation.org work to learn more. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Great to be with you, Ashley. It's time for another one. Hello, Zach. Where are you, where are you calling in from this time? Uh, we uh, drove to Ohio uh, overnight last night, so spending a uh, little bit of time Ooh. with the in-laws from here. So in the in the homeland always feels good. Um, there are trees yeah. and grass and sweet smells of and uh, shaky internet and shaky internet. <laughs> so we're making do with what we got, but it's it, I think we're stable right now. But you know, uh, oh. this is fitting because our our guest this week also is calling in from a remote location. That is true, Padraig Otuma, who is the host of the Poetry Unbound podcast with On Being Studios, called us from what he described as a remote field, a dark road, a remote field in Ireland. <laughs> yes. Uh, Padraig is a fantastic uh, theologian, uh, analyzer of literature, um, but also someone who's done a lot of work in Ireland's peace and reconciliation process, uh, Ireland and Northern Ireland's peace and reconciliation process. So, um, He's a fascinating person to talk to. Whether or not you're a poetry person, Ashley is not a poetry person. Um, I, I am. I like it more than she does. Um, regardless, you're really going to love this conversation, especially if you're a fan of On Being. And Irish accents. <laughs> and Irish accents. Yes, those always sound nice on the ears. And uh, what are we drinking this week with him, Ashley? We are having some tea. So we called Padraig at 9 p.m. his time. So understandably, he was having a little little nighttime cup of tea. So we thought we would uh, have this conversation in that same relaxed spirit. Excellent. So uh, cheers to that, which, you know, it's, again, temperature's chilling a little bit. Feels really nice right now. So cheers. Mm -hmm. Cheers. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What is our first and only story, Zach? Yeah, so if uh, you're plugged into the Catholic news world, um, you surely have heard that Pope Francis released a new social encyclical over the weekend. Uh, we have given this some preview coverage on the show before, um, but we're going to dive into Fratelli Tutti um, in just a, you know, a little bit of a highlight kind of way, uh, talk about the main points that we saw in there and what meant the most to us. But it is a long document, so this isn't a substitute for your own reading. Right. So we'll start with just some of the basics. Uh, as Zach said, it's Fratelli Tutti, and the English subtitle is On Fraternity and Social Friendship. And the Pope made his first trip out of Rome since February and the start of the global coronavirus pandemic to sign the encyclical in Assisi, which is, of course, the birthplace of uh, St. Francis of Assisi. Um, and the Pope has said he started working on this encyclical before the pandemic, but the, the coronavirus pandemic has only made its message all the more urgent and obvious um, in the ways that we are interconnected and dependent on one another across borders. Yeah. Uh, for Pope Francis uh, looks to St. Francis as a model for um, interfaith encounter and just really loving 
all of humanity as a, a brother and sister of God. Um, he he starts off the encyclical by recounting this famous uh, meeting that St. Francis had with the Muslim Sultan Malik al-Kamil in the middle of the Crusades. Um, and Fratelli Tutti has also grown out of a joint declaration that came out, what was it, two years ago, um, with the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar. Um, and Fratelli Tutti was presented at the Vatican by a Muslim judge, which is historic. It's it's a Muslim has never been part of the official presentation of a papal document before. Right. So now that we have some of the basics and background, we thought we would jump into three takeaways from the encyclical. Uh, as Zach said, it's very long, so this is not a comprehensive uh, review by any means, but things that jumped out to us. I'll start with chapter two, which was a a long meditation on a very familiar parable from the Gospels, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, so Pope Francis, he includes the whole the whole passage from the Gospel and then kind of walks us through it in what seems like a pretty Ignatian uh, fashion. He he asks us to put ourselves in the shoes of, of the different characters in the story. So you have the the man beaten and left on the side of the road. You have the priest and the Levite, and you have the Samaritan, of course, who sees the wounded man and is the only one to stop and help him. Yeah, I don't know. This was surprising to me. I, I guess I've heard the story a million times, but Francis explicitly calls out that it is the religious types, you know, the priests and the holy people, that actually go to the other side of the road so they don't have to pass by this person. And Francis like calls us out saying that like it's not enough to just think that you are outwardly doing what God wants you to do to ignore encountering your brothers and sisters. And I, I was sort of very taken by that in particular. But the entire parable is a real lens for how we should be viewing our interactions in this world. Right. So the, the beginning of the encyclical lays out a lot of the ills um, and, and problems facing the world. Um, and and then he presents this parable as a way of looking at them and trying to address them. And he and he says, quote, the decision to include or exclude those lying wounded along the roadside can serve as a criterion for judging every economic, political, social and religious project. And so, yeah, you're right that he does draw attention to the fact that the religious people in this story weren't the ones uh, they weren't the heroes. But he also says that more fundamentally, the story asks us to like strip away the titles, strip away the title of Levite or priest or even Samaritan and look at the basic decision that these people made, whether to whether to give of their time and their efforts or to turn away. Um, and that's a that's a decision that each of us make individually, um, a decision we make within our within our countries and in our interactions with people all around the world. And that sort of brings us to our the second point that we want to take out of this encyclical and talk about here is Francis is trying to critique and walk this strike this balance between individualism and universalism. He's very concerned that you know we still need to protect local people, local cultures, individual perspectives, um, and not just sort of being a flattened out monoculture. And also, while doing that, at the same time, remembering that we are all actually one, right? And holding those two truths in tension um, is a challenge, but something we can all work at. Yeah, and I really like the language Pope Francis uses to to strike this balance between the local and the universal. He says, quote, I can welcome others who are different and value the unique contribution they have to make only if I am firmly rooted in my own people and culture. Everyone loves and cares for his or her native land and village, just as they love and care for their home and are personally responsible for its upkeep. The idea is that once you have that grounding, you are you are 
you're, you learn how to love what is near and that opens you up to, to greater encounter, um, with, with people who are different than you and who um, can enrich your own life through their own cultures. Yeah, w- one of my uh, favorite musicians is uh, Stephen Kellogg, and he writes a song about giving your children roots and wings. And I feel like uh, Pope Francis is saying a little bit of the same here too. You know, this universal and local interplay has some pretty radical uh, impacts on uh, social and political and economic policy. And one of the the big things that's sort of draw, drawn attention, and I think a lot of people would find challenging, is you know, for example, this idea of the universal destination of goods, right? Which is not the most catchy way of <laughs> expressing what the church is trying to say. Yeah, it suffers from some branding, like uh, <laughs> integral human development, is another one of these things the Vatican likes to speak. No, but I think it would make a great uh, bar trivia team, integral human developers. Yeah. So I've at least got that in my back pocket for the ch- the church bar trivia game (laughs) maybe but what it means uh fundamentally is that you know god created the world and he created it for everyone and goods belong to everyone and and that there's a basic right that you have a a right to the the goods the the land the food you need to have a dignified human life um and because we live in a fallen world we do have property rights and borders um to help organize our social life together but my property rights never come prior to another person's right to to live. Yeah, and that actually is a pretty radical statement when you consider what it means for um, our own, you know, we're all raised in this American Lockean concept of private property being the foundational, you know, building block of society. But And this is, you know, a pretty direct challenge to that. And I think this is a challenging thing to swallow for Americans of all political stripes. And speaking of things that might be challenging to uh, some Americans, the Pope comes down definitively in one of the highest levels of church teaching against the death penalty. Um, It shouldn't be a surprise. The Pope has already amended the Catechism of the Catholic Church to say that the death penalty is inadmissible. Um, But bringing it to the level of encyclical is is an important move. Um, and he also says that the church is firmly committed uh, to calling for its abolition worldwide. Yeah, it's a big deal because, you know, church teaching has for a long time left, you know, a lot of exceptions for the death penalty, um, even though, you know, at least in recent years, it's been a narrow exception. But people have still read into some loopholes um, to try and justify its use either here in the United States or around the world to... Um, kill people when really we there's no reason to justify that at all. Yeah, and he even extends that um, to challenging life with uh, no hope of parole, which he calls like a secret death penalty, and and adds to that that Christians need to be working for more humane prison policies and you know system of criminal justice that has as its end not punishment but reconciliation and restoring those who have violated the law um, to society. And like I don't think it's a controversial thing to say, Christians in the United States have pretty well failed at trying to work for for that. Thus far. Yeah, no. So Pope Francis is is now saying unequivocally that if you want to be someone who embraces all of Catholic teaching, you need to be working against the death penalty. Yeah. So those are our three points that we wanted to bring up. But we also wanted to end on, um, you know, reading these encyclicals can be a sort of personal, spiritual experience, too. So, Ashley, what stuck out most to you while you were reading this doesn't have to be a spiritual thing it could also be an intellectual thing yeah no i would say it it has to do with the way that he 
went about balancing this call to universal fraternity. I'm personally find myself kind of, I don't know, uncomfortable or skeptical sometimes about language, about like universal rights, not because I don't think they're good, but because it's, it sometimes rings hollow. Um, and in my own like experience, I remember like in high school, all anyone could talk about was the uh, the genocide and civil war in Darfur. And, and then at other points, there were other like foreign conflicts that like I was always hearing about. And then I get to college and I have this like sense of like, I have to fix the world. <laughs> um, and like, and I fell into this like utilitarian thinking of like, okay, like I'm in this privileged spot of like being at a university. I have to pick the major that'll like help me do the most good to help the most people um, using my gifts. And it was, it was maybe like coming from the right place, but it was, I don't think it was actually, I don't think it was coming from the right place. It seemed like it was coming from a place of guilt about hearing about all the trouble in the world, but not really, not really feeling it, not like feeling like I was, I was trying to help from a place of love. Um, And so the way that Pope Francis talked about making sure that we're grounded in, in the local first and then expanding out from there really spoke to me because that's, I think that was something I was missing growing up. I know this will shock to hear you, but the Washington DC and its suburbs are not like the most, um, they, they don't have very strong local culture. They're kind of transient. um, And so I didn't grow up with that. And so I feel like this encyclical was a challenge for me to kind of really think about what it would mean for me to feel rooted and and grounded to my local community and then like working out from there instead of starting in this place where it's like, okay, I have to be a humanitarian <laughs> um, and solve the world's problems. <laughs> what stuck out to you? I felt sort of personally indicted by a lot of what he was saying. And he, he, social encyclicals are big things. They talk about politics, economics. But Francis is also reminding us that, you know, our, our own personal like holiness matters in a certain sense, right? You know, he says like, Pope Francis is famous for saying, you know, go to the peripheries, go to the peripheries. You know, he explicitly says here, like, look, the peripheries can be in your own family. Like, who are the people that you avoid talking to, who, who you, you treat as someone other, um, either in your neighborhood, in your, in your family, or even, you know, in your, your, this like most intimate relationships, there are parts that you, you other. Um, and so that, for that reason, I found this to be really powerful spiritual reading, um, for myself, um, that, you know, felt like a slap in the face in some, some instances, but you know, a good healthy one, I would say. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I think it was father Thomas Reese wrote in a column. He's a, he was a former editor of America that this is a kind of document you might want to take one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Um, because there's a lot in there (laughs) and, um, it's insane that we call these letters, they're books. Yeah. <laughs> it's an entire book. But yeah, again, we recommend reading it, but also recommend checking out all the coverage that America's got on Fratelli Tutti. It's a big deal. It's a big document. Inside the Vatican has an excellent summary already up. We've got a number of articles summarizing and interpreting what it means. Um, you can check all of that out at americamagazine.org. And now stick around for our conversation with Patrick Otuma on faith and poetry. Joining us from a remote field in Ireland is Padraig Otuma. He is the host of Poetry Unbound with On Being Studios and is the poet and theologian in residence for On Being. 
Welcome to Jesuitical, Padraig. Thanks very much, Ashley. Thanks. Uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, Isaac. Hi. I've been, I, I'm fangirling a little bit because I've been praying with your uh, daily prayer uh, book oh, have you? that you wrote a couple years back. That's what, that's been my, what I've been trying to replace sort of my, I was looking for new things to pick up during this time of lockdown when we were away from the sacraments. And that's been a real gift to me. Um, so thank you, one. Oh, my pleasure. So you are a, a man who works in a lot of different areas, poetry, religion, reconciliation. I'm uh, wondering if you could just at first off, tell us what came first, your, either your love for poetry or your love for Jesus. <laughs> I like the way you put those two up like they're in a fight. Um, yes. Um, well, I think my first love was language. And therefore, I think religion and reconciliation and poetry are all really circling around language and the question of language and what it can do for us, how it fails us and how it serves us and how we serve it. So and how we fail it as well. Um, so I think that's the first love and everything else has come from that. I I often feel like I just have one job, which is to pay attention to language. And then I do that in different ways, depending as to where the money is. <laughs> and and I, I don't mean stacks of cash, like I just mean, you know, enough to pay for food. <laughs> that's right. Well, uh, so what was Catholicism like for you growing up? You grew up in... Ireland, where it sort of permeates so much of daily life, right? Totally. I grew up in Cork. Um, I am number three of six in the family. Um, and I, I I don't even think it was possible for me to imagine what my experience would have been outside of Catholicism. It was like um, trying to imagine what it would be like speaking another language or trying to imagine what it would be like to be another person. It's just a, an experience you can never really do because you're, you're always doing it from your own imagination. Like the church was everywhere. I was in, I grew up in mostly in a village called Cargilline. I think when we moved there, there was about 8,000 people, you know, priests were everywhere. I think there was three priests in the parish. Um, my parents are both daily mass goers. Um, I liked the church. We had a nice chaplain in school. We had some great religion teachers in school. It was everywhere. Learning the prayers off by heart, sacraments. Um, my childhood was suffused with religion. And then I, at the age of 11, my parents kind of accidentally really sent me along to some ecumenical youth camps. I think they sent me along without really realising there was going to be Protestants. <laughs> and, um, anyway, by the time that I uh, told them that there had been some actual Protestants there, um, you know, I had really enjoyed the experience. Um, and so I think from the age of 11, I was very interested in um, Protestant Christianities as well as Catholic versions. Mm. And how did how did that ecumenical uh, experience influence your, your poetry and what you've done? in that world? Huh. Well, I mean, I was always very interested in the Bible, which people associate as a Protestant book sometimes. Um, you know, the way you sometimes get groups of ecumenical people and they'll say, well, let's turn to 2 Corinthians and the Protestants all turn to it and the Catholics <laughs> all turn to the index, find out where it is. <laughs> um, yeah, I can't confirm. I've definitely done that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mean, and I used to believe that Catholics didn't know the Bible and Protestants did. And then I worked for many years in a mostly evangelical organization. And my conclusion is that none of us know it. Um, mm. It's a strange and wild text that's, that says so many things. So... I, I do think, though, that having been around Protestants who um, often when we were having Catholic Protestant discussions as about Mary or purgatory or whatever, the Eucharist, um, people would want to say, where's that in the Bible? So it did give me a necessity to begin to ask a certain form of um, intellectual question about the relationship of Catholic tradition and practice to biblical text. 
And my work in poetry is very interested in the Bible and interested in the strange and curious corners that you find there. Yeah, maybe that's a good place to start talking about Poetry Unbound, which just launched its second season. Um, can you explain a little bit the format of the show? What are you? Tra- what poems are you selecting, and then how do you get into them? So Poetry Unbound is a, a program from the On Being studios. And On Being is a media project as well as a public life project. And so produces a few different um, podcasts and radio shows. On Being with Krista Tippett, Poetry Unbound, This Movie Changed Me, I'm Living the Questions. So Krista asked me a couple of years ago, would I be interested in working with On Being um, to do a poetry offering? And we have two seasons every year and it's broadcast on Monday and Friday. So that means we take 24 poems And Monday or Friday, we just broadcast a single poem. I read it, offer a reflection on it and read it again. It's 12 to 15 minutes long. It's like a small Lexio Divina. That was what I was, yeah, I was just struck by that. The exact structure is almost, it's Lexio Divina, right? Where you read scripture, pause. If I was properly Jesuit, I'd have made it a triple colloquy. And read it three times. <laughs> yeah, but sure, two thirds, so we'll take it. <laughs> a double colloquy. Yeah. Yes. Uh, there's something about hearing a poem and then hearing a reflection on it, um, hopefully in order to open up the hospitality of the poem and to open up the, the way within which the poem is yearning to be heard. Um, poetry is often seen like this thing that people need to achieve rather than I think poetry is seeking to welcome in. And what I'm what I try to do in the reflections in between is to offer some moments where you can point out a piece of craft or a piece of technique or a little bit of a, a literary background or some piece of information that's helping to open up the poem so that when you hear it for a second time, it's almost like you're hearing it for a first time and some windows have been opened and you can look in or look out and see what the world is doing and perhaps think, if I were to respond to a prompt like this, how would I do so? Um, I think poetry veers toward the human person with a great level of respect and often, unfortunately, I think people finish school having felt like poetry was something that didn't respect them unless they were able to get the answers correct in the examinations. And I think that's a real shame. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm glad you said that because Zach likes to make fun of me for being very uncultured because I'm not, (laughs) I don't read a lot of poetry. Um, And I think it was kind of a little ruined for me in high school. Like we, in in American high schools, you have these things called DBQs, document-based questions, where it's like you're given a poem and you're given like five questions and you have one hour to write as much as you possibly can about that poem for the test um, so you can get your credits for college. And so like that was my introduction to poetry as as a young adult. Um, And so it was never something I saw as like pleasurable. Um, and had you never done poetry in school up till then? Like, you, yeah. were you learning poems off by heart in school? Not very no, much. No, I don't think one. Um, yeah. Like, the memorizing yeah, poem not, thing doesn't not, happen when you're a kid anymore, I don't think. Okay. No, which my mom was horrified by because she, she can to this day <laughs> recite poems that she learned in elementary school. Because yeah. there's a reason we call it off by heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, isn't, it, isn't it so interesting that in English we say off by heart? We don't say off by mind or off by memory. Mm. We say off by heart. There's something so beautiful yeah. about that. Um, I think I have heard of some kind of of the uh, more modern versions of education that are once again beginning to recognise the benefit, cultural benefit of um, learning poetry off by heart for the sheer pleasure of it. Yeah. So 
you know, that that my background said I, mm. I did I do really enjoy poetry unbound because um oh, you, you do frame it as um you you say in the intro that poetry quote bows down to unexpected human encounters and moments. So, you know, you're placing mm. Poetry is not this lofty thing up there that like I have to try to like access um, by knowing all the rules, but as as something no. that's speaking um, to to totally to humans. I mean, you know, if somebody was singing, if they were listening to a song on the radio and singing along and loving it, and if somebody came in and said, "Well, you realize that you know, unless you know what key you're singing in, and you can't actually enjoy the song," that's ridiculous. Um, song goes into something in the body, something in the heart. It connects us to each other. It connects to melody it does something with the lungs that can lift the body and I think poetry does the same thing it goes into the heart there's a way within which the reciting of words that are beautiful placed after each other can do something to lift you up the poem that we broadcast today is James Wright's poem A Blessing where he and a friend late at night get off the highway near Rochester in Minnesota and go down and these two ponies come across a field to greet them in the dark and it speaks about how the ponies bow and that they're quivering with excitement and that they are filled with love, these ponies. And this man um, is uh, a war veteran and he's describing this moment of tenderness. And toward the end of the poem, he says that he's worried that if he tried to take in any more of the beauty, that he would burst into blossom. <laughs> That's such a gorgeous, tender thing to be described. That's something to be... Um, to be moved by rather than something to have to deconstruct. Oh, totally. And under in, in 30 minutes or less, or <laughs> you're not going to get a good job with, which, yeah, I, I'm wondering, you know, part of the benefit of Poetry Unbound is not only, you know, getting exposed to some of these, these great invitations to, to dwell, um, but also having you there as a, as a sort of trusted guide to, you know, poke, you know, pull out some themes, some questions, some context. Uh, so in that, in that spirit, we were hoping that you would be willing to uh, share a poem with us and our audience uh, during this conversation. Yeah, I'd be delighted. Um, I've got a poem. Um, I'm very interested in Jesus of Nazareth. My, I did a, I did a Vatican undergrad and then I did a master's with the um, Presbyterians. Now I'm doing a PhD in theology and poetry with them. Um, the Scottish people, <laughs> all of them. Um, so lots of my poems do circle around the character of Jesus. Um, a Jewish friend of mine once said to me that he found the Christian texts boring and Christianity boring because Christianity was so convinced that it tried to present Jesus of Nazareth as perfect. Mm -hmm. um, so um, here's the response to that. The poem is called Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You weren't that perfect weren't lamb pure or cocksure with certainty. You weren't as innocent as you're made out to be. You knew people, you knew power games, knew that the main aim of ambition is ambition. You knew the names of other people's fears because you had plenty of your own. You knew the touch of a friend was not dependent on their cleanliness. And you knew this because you knew need, knew the way that story bleeds through actions of a day and how shame makes us play parts that are beneath us. You are beneath us and above us in the song we sang as children. You are in the piss and blood. You are spit mixed with mud. You are the rotting hand of God waiting for a hand to hold. You're not gold, you're rock cracked open.
Hmm. It's quite provocative, no? Oh, oh, oh really? Tell me, tell me about the provocative <laughs> parts. Well, I, first, I, I think being able to say all of these things that sound like they're they're either bad things or insults or, um, <laughs> but presented as something to to be delighted by. Mm. I would suppose, right? Um, which yeah. is not typically, as you as you said before, how we're meant to imagine Jesus. Yeah, it sounds like how you described poetry as something that's not up there. Mm. Yeah. I suppose I'm very interested in whatever people think about the claims to divinity that are put on Jesus. I, I think one of the fascinating things about this character is that the the stories of him call for attention and literary attention and imaginative attention and a serious kind of um, curiosity. I used to be a school chaplain and I had done the Ignatian exercises years ago. And when I was a school chaplain and young people would come in for a chaplaincy session in kind of groups of about eight or nine, I'd lead them through basically an Ignatian prayer experience. And um, they'd be taking a walk somewhere nice and feeling relaxed in their imagination. And then Jesus would come along and say hello. And he'd say their names because I knew their names. And then they'd take a walk and they could say whatever they wanted. And then he'd go away, you know. And we talk a little bit about the experience, confirmation prep or something that would be happening for middle school or high school kind of ages. And um, one time there was a small fellow, he was 11, just coming up to his confirmation. And he said, when Jesus came up and said hello to me and knew my name, I wondered how he knew my name. So when I, when I was allowed to ask him whatever I wanted, I said to him, how do I know you are who you say you are? And I yearn for that kind of spontaneity to say what I think in the place of religion rather than imagining what I should think or what I should say or what I shouldn't say, imagining all the rules, all the things that are said to you, to be open to the human experience, which I think is one of the things that the gospel texts, the gospel literatures are all about, these interruptions that happen, interruptions that seem to have delighted or disturbed people enough that they remembered them and wrote them down with some level of recall. And so I suppose I'm interested in being less constrained by what I should or shouldn't say or think and more interested in thinking, how can I meet with curiosity and wonder and integrity and say the kind of things in poetry that if there is a Jesus of Nazareth that I'd say to his face were he to listen. Well, that's the the thing that I feel in myself when I hear a poem like this is there's this tension going on where, you know, the first line to the poem is, you weren't that perfect. And there's a part of me that wants to, you know, be curious and dig deeper. And then there's this, um, let's call it, I don't know, Catholic guilt side in me that goes, <laughs> well, but you know, of course, that he was perfect, right? <laughs> and I I think to my core, both of those things, and I don't know how to, and I don't know how to shake them or if they're necessarily always supposed to be in tension. I learned a, a kind of a theological maxim when I was doing my undergrad of that which was not assumed was not redeemed. I think Irenaeus of Lyon said it. Um, or one of those early church fathers, uh, all the theological students now are listening to it thinking, well, you clearly didn't do that much studying in your Vatican <laughs> degree, if you can't remember who said it. Um, but basically what it's saying is that if 
if the claims of Christianity about an incarnation of God in human form are to be taken seriously, well then humanity's experiences and ignorances and um, bodily functions and shock and all of those things are to be taken very seriously. And I suppose that's what I'm trying to do in language is to shock myself into thinking, how can I pay attention to what it means to be alive, to what it means to be Irish, to what it means to be a man, to what it means to be a gay man, to what it means to be aware today, to what it means to be a person influenced by history and influenced by privilege, to a person shaped by religion, even though I am as much shaped by doubt as I am by belief. Um, What does all of that mean in order to put one word after another and feel like, yeah, I needed to say that and that was important to say. Not for shock value, I'm uninterested in shock, but I am interested in something like integrity. Yeah. You've described language um, previously as as a sacrament. What, yeah. what did you mean by that? One of the things that's always fascinated me about the book of Genesis is that in the, in the describing of the God um, in this great myth of origin, creating something, the God character creates with language. And I think that shows us that original poets, too, were fascinated by what can happen if you use language and what we can create and what the creative power of language can be. You can make or break a world, really, depending as to how you use language. We see the failure of language happening everywhere in public life these days. Maybe it's always been happening. You know, some clever or diabolical person in Europe at one point called the rest of the world the new world, which gave people these terrible justifications to go and create wars and start genocides and annihilate peoples and languages and systems of governance. And so the desecration of language is nothing new. But if, for instance, somebody says to you that they love you, something is created there. And so we we oscillate back and forth between how language can save us and how language can fail us. So hence, I think it's an original sacrament because language comes from the body. Language isn't esoteric. Language isn't vague. Language uses your tongue and your mouth and your lips and your teeth and your throat and your lungs and your gut, everything. And language is not just spoken either. Language is using your hands. Language is using your body. So that's why, I mean, sacraments are always something tangible that point to something beyond that. And so I think that language is something absolutely tangible. Yeah, and and something you've used in your work in peace and reconciliation in Northern Ireland. Um, so maybe this is a good point to pivot to talking about that. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk about how that work started um, and the in the role of language and storytelling um, in in both perpetuating mm-hmm. violence and and you know building yeah. peace? Well. Depending as to who you ask, the the question of British-Irish trouble is either 400 or 700 years old. And so there's a long history here about British people being in Ireland and then Irish people wondering, what does that mean for us? And for some people that was opportunity, other people that was enslavement, Um, other people it was famine. Britain had created this thing called the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland in the early 1800s, not democratically, that needs to be said. And Ireland had been campaigning for independence for hundreds of years, really, and um, through small revolutions. And anyway, the British did leave most of Ireland, but maintained a corner in the northeast where they had planted over hundreds of years lots of loyal British subjects. So this new state called Northern Ireland was created, a Protestant state for a Protestant people, it was called. And that was um, just the latest stage, really, of the development of enmity and um, partition and all the terrible things that partitioning an island does. 
And so in the 60s, through a civil rights movement, there was an increasing attention toward the um, poor treatment of poor people, many of whom were Catholics, but not all Protestants as well. And then that erupted into violence. It was kind of grabbed by a, a, a violent campaign by the IRA. And that really kick-started 30 years of violence, um, 1968 to 1998. Um, three and a half thousand people murdered, 80,000 people injured, but 500,000 people directly affected by murder and trauma. And this is when you're growing, you're sort of coming of age during this time, yeah? Yeah. I was born in 75. Um, Carmela began in 1965, before the troubles broke out. But, I mean, the dogs in the street knew that the troubles were coming. Corimela is one of many ecumenical communities um, set up all across Europe in the 20th century. Um, you probably call them public theology institutes these days. Corimela brings about 10,000 people together every year for programs of peace and reconciliation. Some young people, some older people, all kinds of things in schools works alongside history teachers and is interested in people having opportunities to share each other's stories and to hear each other, as well as then to think how does the kind of mutual exchange of story contribute to a society that in governance and policy and education join together to contribute to a, a lasting and significant and measurable peace. Um, human encounter is a the kind of main part of what Cormila does in terms of bringing people together who would find it difficult to be together and that is a significant part of what is involved in peace but nobody pretends that that's the only part policy change is one of them acknowledgement of the past is another so Coromila is a place of faith and doubt a place of bringing people together to argue with each other to explore in language um, what does it mean to coexist alongside each other not for the purposes of agreeing but for the purposes of making sure that in disagreeing we don't kill each other Can I ask like you're, you serve as leader of this community but not as not as an outsider right you're you grew up in Ireland, you're an Irishman. Did you have to learn anything about reconciliation, either before you were able to take on this role or while you were taking on this role? Well, I took, I got the role just in my late 30s. I was 38, I think, soon to be 39 when I became leader. And I had been um, living in Belfast for 12 years at that stage. And I, I mean, I grew up in Cork, which is far away from the most recent outbreak of the Troubles. But I, I grew up an Irish speaker and um, in a family that was uh, alert to the question of Irish nationalism. And so I had always been very interested in how Catholics and Protestants could speak well with each other about our religious differences. And then contributing to that, once I moved to the north, was the question about the historical differences and questions to do with grief and violence and torture and terrorism also, both by self-appointed actors as well as by state actors in terms of terrorism partly what you want to do in reconciliation and in mediation, because I trained in group mediation as well. Um, part of what you want to do is to know enough that you realise you can't expect that anything you know will work. You can't go in with arrogance to a question of mediating a conflict. You want to go in with you know, the courtesy of a lot of homework and then the humility of a lot of listening in order to figure out what do we want. Um, as well as then the skill to say... Do we want to just fight? I think often, unfortunately, conflict studies and conflict, being a conflict practitioner or a conflict resolution practitioner, you realise that lots of people's imagination looks forward to a really good fight that they hope they'll win. And I suppose one of the questions in conflict resolution is, OK, so what happens the day after you win? <laughs> what, what happens yeah. then? Yeah. You went into this also as, as a poet. 
I don't think a lot of people like think of poetry as connected to reconciliation. So I was just wondering, like, what's its role? Yeah, I had been poet in residence at Corrymeela for eight years before I became leader. Uh, that was a part-time freelance job. I suppose I'm always curious why anybody would come along to an event that I would have been running. Um, and first of all, I would have explored their desire because um, I, I will never be able to change anybody. But often people wish to discover something new. They wish to have some new wonder, some new curiosity, have an answer to a question that they know they don't know the answer to. And that is a creative moment. That's something like the spark behind a poem. Hmm. Do you think you can get anywhere without that creative moment? I don't know if you can, because sure, we've all tried, whether it's on social media or around a dinner table or shouting at somebody, we've all tried to change somebody else's point of view. And typically, the harder you try to change them, or the harder somebody tries to change you, um, the more resistant we can become. Um, change is a very intimate thing. And so I am fascinated anytime anybody comes along to an event. Now, obviously, Cormula does a lot of recruiting or listens um, any reconciliation project. You know, you're invited in to do some change work with a community of people. You turn up and you realise, my God, everybody here hates me because they feel nervous that you're going to force them to change a point of view that feels precious to them because it's tied up with their grief or their mourning or their anger or their sense of displacement or marginalisation or misrepresentation. So all of these things are things to be explored. I think finding a way to say, look, whatever opinions you have, you can leave with them, but maybe we'll hold them in a new way. Maybe we'll try to ask a question that we know we don't know the answer to and to find ways within which human connection can be um, intellectually stimulating, personally stimulating, where you can explore power, because power is always very present in the room, as well as threat, because some people might be able to get to the stage to say, um, I didn't tell anybody I was coming along here tonight to this meeting because I would be worried what they'd think of me, whether I was turning a traitor to my own political or national or religious point of view. And all of that is very interesting and very brave. And ultimately, as a person involved in peace mediation, I am aware, A, of the threat that is that peace is, uh, because it always takes risk, and B, of the invitation to creativity. And I see every person as a creative person. So I suppose I come along in those situations, hopefully having done homework, but also hopefully with respect for people who come along. They're not subjects for me to work on. They are um, participants together with me as we think, what can we do here that's unexpected, that we don't know the outcome of yet? You mentioned bravery being a key ingredient in that. And, yeah. um, and risk. <laughs> and risk, yeah. I'm re In your daily prayer book, you... First of all, you recommend using it however you want. I believe I said make your own damn soup. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but one of the overarching structures in there is that you, every day, pray for courage. Yeah. Can you tell me why you think that? I think that would strike people as surprising, that that would be something that's you know, worthy of every single day prayer. Hmm. Can you speak to a little bit about why you included that? Um, I mean, it kind of happened by accident. Um, I knew that I was going to write a prayer for the first year of my leadership at Corrymeela. I, I got the job toward the end of 2014 and um, I was the first Catholic and the first gay person to be in the role of leadership there. And I suppose I needed some courage myself and 
I, I love the word courage because it comes from the Latin word core, meaning heart. And that courage is a powerful invitation to live from the heart, to live from as the catechism says, that part of us that is in encounter, that part of us where the psychic drive is, that part of us where the intuition rests. And that, I think, is of the quality of peace. Peace is not a project. Peace is not a strategic plan, even though it'll be benefited by projects and strategic plans. Peace is something where we guarantee in the midst of our differences, in the midst of our deep disagreements, we will not take recourse to threat. We will explore with language and with risk what it means for me to say to you the kind of things I want to say about you. And I think we need courage for that. Yeah, especially in the United States right now. <laughs> I guess all... Well, so I I'm hearing, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I should say that courage is courage is something we need to look to to the violences of our past. I think Irish people love to blame the British for everything that happened here. But when you look at the history of the Irish in the United States, for instance, in the 1800s, you see how the Irish joined in with colonial projects. Absolutely evidenced were that the majority of Irish people were involved in publicly or tacitly supporting enslavement. Um, a very few spoke out against it. And it takes courage, I think, to tell that truth, because we would much rather imagine that because we suffered as Irish people in the diaspora, that therefore we were the friends of the others who were suffering. There are a couple of nice stories about that, um, but they're only, unfortunately, a couple of nice stories. The, the thing that Irish origin diasporic people need, I think, is courage to face into the fact that we suffered at home and then caused suffering far from our own homes and participated in it. And that takes a kind of courage today to tell that, not as a way of increasing shame upon shame about what it means to be Irish or Irish origin, but as a way to be courageous today in recognising, my God, much and all as the problems were foisted upon us. We have foisted the problems upon other people for centuries and therefore a reckoning and a reparation and a justice is needed. Mm. It's a good reminder that courage comes not only, you know, for other people or for other countries, but really it's a, in our families and our communities, too, that are listening here. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. We do have oh, one final question for you, um, <laughs> and we ask all our guests this, but if you could canonize one person, Catholic or not, living or dead, fictional or real, who would it be and why? And now you didn't tell me the fictional part before. Now <laughs> suddenly I'm, I'm thinking about other things. Um, I think the first person that comes to mind is Emily Dickinson, although I don't think she'd be that interested in being canonised. I love Emily Dickinson. I just think that she is one of the most innovative and inventive and creative thinkers, one of the people who did such interesting things with language. Um, and I, I think we need that kind of um, courage. I read her letters as well as her poems. I've got a book coming out in 2022, which is kind of like through the year with Emily Dickinson in 52 readings. And um, today I was reading through some of her letters. Uh, she says here, I am studying music now with the Jays, the Crows, and find them charming artists. And then also about the birds. She loved birds. On a wet day, she wrote, It is lonely without the birds today, for it rains badly, and the little poets have no umbrellas. <laughs> she said such amazing things. And in another letter, she said, The past is not a package one can lay away. My God, 
what does that mean to look at that? She said such fascinating things about religion, about Jesus, about science, about belief and about accusation that I think that her letters already for me are the kind of accompaniment of the witness of saints. Mm. Wow, that is beautiful. And, and you know, something I love about is that it was never for like an audience bigger than the like people in front of her, it felt like. Well, it's it's hard to know. Uh, um, some of the earlier depictions of Emily Dickinson are that she's this kind of recluse who was like, oh, no, 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 I don't want any attention. I mean, my readings of her make me think that she was going, I'm better than all of you, so I'm not actually going to throw my pearls before swine. <laughs> her, like, she knew she was brilliant. And I think that was just the basics. And she was full of love, filled with magnificence toward the people that she loved. The letters she wrote to people who were in distress or people in her town or people of her acquaintance who were bereaved are so filled with courage and courtesy and language and commiseration as well as not being frightened of death but to look it straight in the face. Um, so I, I I think her her mind would be fascinating to hear because she had a confidence that has often been belied because I don't think people knew what to do with a woman with such confidence from the 1800s. I think that makes her even more (laughs) worthy of venerating. Oh, yeah. In one poem, she says, the bobolink is gone, the bobolink, that beautiful bird. And she says, um, the bobolink is gone, the rowdy of the meadow, and no one swaggers now but me. (laughs) What women in the 1860s were writing poems using the word swagger with Mm. such magnificence about themselves. Um, So she was filled with a life fit to bursting. When she died, she had requested that she wouldn't be carried in a coffin down 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 the main street in Amherst, but that instead she would be carried across a field of buttercups. And she was. So even in death, she belies what was expected of her. Mm. All right, St. Dickinson. <laughs> Pray for us. Uh, Padraig, you can make, we just want to make sure people go follow and listen to Poetry Unbound. Season two just launched. Um, you can get that wherever you get your podcasts. Is there anything else you want to plug right now? Um, well, myself and my partner run a storytelling event called 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their life. It's um, an arts-based thing. Um, it's been running in Belfast now for about nine years. It, Previous to lockdown, it had become one of the biggest free monthly arts nights in Belfast. We don't break into small groups for discussion. It's just tell a true story from your life. I mean, people submit. It's not an open mic. We've we've turned it to Zoom and it's on podcast as well, 10 by 9. You can put the link out through your stuff, T-E-N-X and then the number 9. It's a great joy because I think what happens when you hear a story like that is you think, oh, I've got a story like that. A small story, a large story, a life-changing story or an almost forgettable story, but true. And because it's true, it stays with you and it impacts. Well, thank you for sharing some of your story with us and our listeners. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have, Zach? We mentioned it last week. We're mentioning it again this week. It's still election season, and you, you still, you know, you you haven't learned enough yet, I'm guessing, even though you might feel like that. Um, take a break from the horse race between the candidates and actually dig into the issues. Check out Voting Catholic. It's a new podcast from America Magazine that takes a look at 
the issues. What does it mean to vote as a Catholic voter by the issues? And this is not a dry voting guide. It it goes through these issues through the stories of people who are living them, who know them well, who have been advocating um, on things like immigration, religious liberty, uh, poverty. It's it's really well done. Um, I'm I'm caught up and can't recommend it more highly. So go to wherever you get your favorite podcasts and subscribe to Voting Catholic. All right. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? I got a consolation this week. Um, it feels pretty, pretty straightforward. You know, sometimes it it takes a lot of work to connect some dots. But you know, talking to Padre this week reminded me uh, when I was in my first year at America five years ago. I was a a bit of a producer, a showrunner for our serious show. Um, so I was charged of coordinating guests, getting them there, making sure they had water, all that stuff. And it was straight out of college. You know, I was a little unsure on what exactly. I wanted to do with my life still. I had really thought about seriously about going into academic theology and ended up in America. And Padre, and I'm sure you got this from the interview, is just such a warm person, a good listener, and a curious person. And so here I was, a nobody, a a, a, a child, and just like we're waiting for the show to start. And he is, you know, asking really intelligent, thoughtful, empathetic questions about my life. And I had mentioned like wanting to be at America because I wanted to do you know, a theology that it was a little bit more public and trying to reach more people. Um, and he wrapped up our conversation just in the nicest, most genuine way possible. Like, good luck with your public theology. <laughs> um, and it, it sounds like it could have been dismissive, but only and only he could say it in a way that yeah. made me really feel like affirmed in my vocation. And having him on the podcast five years later, you know, was like a reminder and a consolation that, you know, God was at work then and he's at work now. And like all of these, this memory called that to mind for me. So that's what I got. Yeah. And now you're a public theologian. That's yeah, that's right. I guess you could just, if, if I could call public podcaster, how about that? Yeah. What do you got, Ashley? Uh, I went to father Sundrup and I really thought this was his desolation and he somehow convinced me it was a consolation. Um, so here we go. Uh, The other day, I was editing an article for America, and as is often the case when you work for a Catholic magazine, the articles you're working on are, you know, invitations to prayer sometimes. And it was an article about the Jesuits working during the plague in the 16th century and how while they suspended communion, they did not suspend confession because that was seen as like the most essential sacrament. And it kind of like made me like pause and think and be like, wow, I've spent a lot of time thinking about how much I miss the Eucharist and not a moment thinking about missing confession. In fact, it's been nice to have an excuse to not feel bad about not going to confession. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so I start, I was like, I need to look into that. So I was just like thinking about like, okay, what is like, what is the roadblock here? Why you've never had like a traumatic experience in confession? You've only felt better after going like, what is keeping you from it for the last couple years and what it came down to is i was just like well if i went in there there would be some things that are technically maybe sins that don't feel like sins and then there are other things that an outsider might not recognize as sin but that feel like they're sin to me and are pulling me from god and other people and then there are other things that are definitely sins but i don't know if i'm ready to to say them out loud yet, because if I do that, then maybe I'll have to change. <laughs> um, and and just I 
I was able to like kind of name the fear that I have of like, and when I was talking to Father Sundrup about this, he was like, well, it sounds like you have a divided heart. Like you clearly part of you wants to go to confession and part of you doesn't. And it's because you're afraid of, of, you know, the fact that if you go, then, you know, God's going to be calling you to be holy and that's scary and you don't know what that looks like. Um, so it sounds like you're wrestling with God right now. And if you're wrestling with God, that means God's there and that's a consolation. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> I know, I know the, I know the happy consolations. I know the sad consolations. I had not thought about like the martial <laughs> warlike consolations. Um, now that is Jesuitical. <laughs> yeah. <Definition>. yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm just like over here wrestling with God. Um, and it's like, not like the most comfortable place to be, but like being just naming that it, that's what's going on um is i think it it was helpful for me uh and getting closer to the place where i'm like ready to like be completely honest in confession <laughs> well we're all trying to get there i think yeah <laughs> uh those jesuits they will show you where god is despite your best of efforts yeah <laughs> all right yeah. get us out of here <laughs> All right. Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. <laughs>